and welcome to The Aftermath. I'm your host, Chris, and I'm delighted to have you join me for this discussion of scriptures from the second week of Advent, Year C. As always, let's begin with the readings themselves. The first reading is from the book of Baruch, chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. Jerusalem, take off your robe of mourning and misery. Put on the splendor of glory from God forever, wrapped in the cloak of justice from God. Bear on your head the mitre that displays the glory of the eternal name. For God will show all the earth your splendor. You will be named by God forever, the peace of justice, the glory of God's worship. Up, Jerusalem, stand up on the heights, look to the east and see your children gathered from the east and the west, at the word of the Holy One, rejoicing that they are remembered by God. Led away on foot by their enemies, they left you. But God will bring them back to you, borne aloft in glory as on royal thrones. For God has commanded that every lofty mountain be made low, and that the age-old depths and gorges be filled to level ground, that Israel may advance secure in the glory of God. The forests and every fragrant kind of tree have overshadowed Israel at God's command. For God is leading Israel in joy, by the light of his glory, with his mercy and justice for company. The second reading is from the letter of St. Paul to the Philippians, chapter 1, verses 4 through 6 and 8 through 11. Brothers and sisters, I pray always with joy in my every prayer for all of you because of your partnership for the gospel from the first day until now. I'm confident of this, that the one who began a good work in you will continue to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. God is my witness, how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may increase ever more and more in knowledge and every kind of perception to discern what is of value, so that you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. The Gospel is from Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Licinius was tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the desert. John went throughout the whole region of the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one crying out in the desert, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The winding roads shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Okay, so some initial thoughts on the readings this week. Uh, This week in liturgy, we're introduced to the figure of John the Baptist. Uh, The three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all have very similar, uh, almost identical accounts of John the Baptist's foretelling of the Lord's coming. Although each of the literary styles of the authors uh, is unique, uh, Luke is classically, uh, well, classical, I guess. Uh, he's very Greek. He's got a sophisticated writing style with his prose, and, and he's highly interested in naming specific people to place the narrative in its appropriate historical context. So, in the first reading, we see again the theme 
from last week of a new name for a new purpose. God redefines the people of Jerusalem, changing them from a people who are scattered and miserable into a people of justice, of peace, of glory for God's worship. The call to cast off the clothing of mourning and don new garb aligns perfectly with John's call in the gospel for us to prepare the way of the Lord, to stop what we're doing before and begin the work of readying ourselves and our world for the Lord to come and dwell among us. So let's get into the readings themselves here. So as for the first reading, uh, continuing with the theme of Messianic names for Jerusalem, we see a direct callback to last week's reading, the first reading from Jeremiah chapter 33. Uh, Interesting to note, Baruch was uh, famously Jeremiah's secretary, uh, and fitting, the book of Baruch isn't so much a single work, but it's kind of a collection of several pieces of different literary traditions that are all kind of woven together into a cohesive narrative that are they're kind of grouped by theme and style. Uh, so it's not like you know the beginning of Baruch to the end is like one story told by a guy. So as for the passage that we actually hear this week, at first glance, the reading seems to be just a clear exhortation to the people of God to rejoice to stand up and be ready for the atonement with God as they journey back home. Now, this is a celebration. It's a joyful reunion of a people who were scattered by sin, who were driven out by their enemies. God is reuniting people with purpose, and that purpose is to be born in glory. So this is where we get imagery from the song about how there are no mountains high enough, no valleys low enough to keep me from getting to that. You know what song I'm thinking of. That's what God is saying to us in the promise of our own glorious reunion. So this week, I think, this reading gives us an opportunity to take stock of all the various names the Lord has given the city of Jerusalem, this home for his chosen people on earth. The list is really pretty astounding if you start to stack it up. So we've got from Isaiah 126, the city of justice, the faithful city. Jeremiah, the Lord's throne, the Lord our justice. Uh, In Ezekiel, It's described as the center of the nations. It's described as the Lord is here. There's a ton in Isaiah. Salvation, the holy city, city of the Lord, espoused, frequented, the joyful city, Mother Zion, peace of justice, the glory of God's worship. We actually see that in Baruch 5.4, this week's first reading. So right away, we can kind of connect this back to the tradition of the prophets and see that this redefining, this naming convention gives purpose to God's people on earth. And really, this is a time for us to understand the significance of a return to Jerusalem and what a fundamental difference there is between God's children reuniting versus when they left. The departure was hard. It was painful. It was miserable. The people were driven out in forced marches, both in an allegorical sense by sin, as I've mentioned a couple of times, and that can be the case for us today. Uh, they were also driven out in quite a literal sense. This, that was the historical case at the time of the writing of the poem from Baruch in today's reading. So according to Father Aloysius Fitzgerald, I think it's pronounced, FSC, the book of Baruch's many fragments were woven together and set against this background of the events that led up to and followed the fall of Jerusalem in the year 587. And that was amidst the Babylonian captivity. Uh, the Babylonian captivity was a truly uniquely harsh and defining period in the history of God's people. You know, it, it really brought the term exile 
uh, to the to the center of kind of their identity for for you know, that feeling persists today. So contrast all of that with the way God's people return in this poem. They're joyful. They're walking along free paths. They're sometimes even being carried home in triumph on a throne. Even the terrain itself is fundamentally different. The mountains are made low and the valleys are filled so that the way is nice and even and easy for them to walk. The trees even grant peaceful shade to a people on a journey homeward. This new purpose, this new direction of reunion couldn't have a more different character than the driving out that we hear about in the verse. This is a tale of true renewal. That theme is really fitting with what Catholic scholars have come to understand about the book of Baruch. So this type of literature that the book represents, uh, that being a combination of fragments of kind of uncertain authorship uh, and composition and whose text only actually survives as a Greek translation of lost Hebrew manuscripts, it's, it's not to represent an accurate historical account with perfectly correct details. Instead, the point of this kind of edifying interpretive historical literature is to combine this didactic, this teaching narrative fancy uh, with genuine history in a way that clarifies a story to the people of the day who would have been reading and listening to it. So this book offers reflections on the exile, the conditions of which the Jews of the diaspora would have been intimately familiar. And the story of the exile presents the people with the reason for its distress, like the explanation behind that. But it also provides them with the source of its salvation and the certainty of its restoration. It will be a new Jerusalem, a redefined Jerusalem that will be restored as the old Jerusalem of the exile will fall away. So indeed the text makes clear, none other than God will lead the exiles personally back home to be made new. So moving on to the the second reading from the letter of St. Paul to the Philippians. Uh, This reading is also uh, sort of a continuation from last week's second reading, uh, that one having been from St. Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, in which he described what the beginnings of Christian charity look like. So here in this week's reading, in chapter 1, verse 6, St. Paul shares his confidence with the church at Philippi that the Lord God is going to continue his good work in the people there right up until the day Christ Jesus comes again. We see a theme of continuing what has begun until such a time it's brought to an end, just like we set up in last week's readings when we talked about the beginnings of Christian charity. So, as we can see right from the get-go in this reading, joy is one of the major themes, really, of the whole epistle. Uh, And we'll see it again in verses 18 and 25. We'll see it in chapter 2, verses 2, 17, 28, and 29. We'll see it in chapter 3, verse 1. We'll see it in chapter 4, verses 1, 4, and 10. It pervades the entire discussion of the epistle. Uh, We also see a callback to the first day, uh, which here is meant as a reference to the first day uh, that the people in Philippi were converted. If you're interested in that story, St. Luke recounts it actually, in the Acts of the Apostles, uh, chapter 16, verses 12 through 40. And then finally, toward the end of today's second reading, St. Paul explains that love, which is the heart of the gospel message, I mean, it bears fruit, and that fruit is the knowledge to discern what's really important. So we can ask, why is that of such significance? Well, for one thing, uh, St. Paul points out elsewhere, actually, in his letter to the Galatians, uh, verse, chapter 5, verse 23, 
this discernment is freeing. And it's freeing because it transcends the limitations of any kind of legislation. There's no more external law dictating the outward behavior of believers. Instead, the law of Christ, as St. Paul mentions in his letter to the Romans, that's now the source of guidance for the faithful. And the faithful will follow that law, and they'll grow in love. Uh, at, At this point, I think it's worth noting that the letter to the Philippians is not an especially doctrinal, it's it's not really hard-hitting, theologically speaking. Uh, There isn't quite the same level of theological insight or instruction or kind of doctrinal rigor that we see in the great letters, uh, those being the letter to the Romans and the two letters to the Corinthians. Instead, as you might have gathered from today's passage, this is really more of a friendly letter. Depending on the authorship hypothesis that one believes about when exactly St. Paul would have written this letter, whether on it was on his first trip to Macedonia to visit Philippi or on his third journey on the way to Philippi when he was in Ephesus. It's not unreasonable to believe that St. Paul had a unique level of trust with the church in Philippi compared with Christian churches elsewhere. Uh, but nonetheless, I think the quality of discernment as the fruit of love, you know, this call to rejoice in that truth, Those are things we can take away as modern-day readers of the letter. So importantly, in verses 6 and 10, St. Paul mentions the parousia, which is just a fancy Greek term for the second coming of Jesus Christ. He says it's the main motive for ethical conduct. It's the reward of Christian life. And I think that that is something that we as present-day readers can kind of internalize. You know, the the work of love. I I hear people often describe love as uh, as sort of a, a labor and I do think it's it, it, it takes effort. It's a hard, persistent thing sometimes. Uh, but the fruit of that is discernment. And we, we gain the ability to, to differentiate between things that are of value and things that are not. Or at least we get to figure out how to kind of rank them in the hierarchy of, of where our interests should lie and where our time should be spent. And I think that's a good practical takeaway from today's second reading. Now, moving on to the gospel reading. Uh, This week's gospel is another example of a passage that kind of initially seems straightforward. It's almost a direct continuation of the theme from the first week of Advent again. Get ready because the Lord is coming. Uh, There's actually a lot of interesting stuff to look into in the text itself, though. So, to begin... Uh, This section is one that has a lot in common with similar passages from the Gospel of St. Matthew. Uh, This is interesting because, uh, so according to Father Carol Stuhlmuller, CP, Matthew and Luke share a similar source from which the content of the Gospels they wrote was originally drawn. Uh, That's actually true of the Gospel of Mark as well. You know, there's a proto-Markan source somewhere uh, that was kind of the the source for the Gospel of Mark, but there there are also some commonalities among the other synoptics. Uh, And then, of course, they each have their own unique sources as well. There are sources that are exclusive to Luke and exclusive to Matthew, but Matthew and Luke actually share another common source. Uh, scholars don't know the identity of that original common source between Matthew and Luke. Uh, and for simplicity, they designated it the Q source. Uh, this is really uncomfortable in the current political climate, but I assure you it has nothing to do with this QAnon stuff. Uh, they just called it the Q source because it's kind of a question uh, of who it is. So while the passage each author, Mark and Luke, or Matthew and, and Luke, write, introduces John the Baptist as one who's preparing the way of the Lord, there are a couple of interesting differences. So first, while Matthew tells us that John warns that the kingdom of God is close at hand, Luke leaves this out. 
And he actually saves that warning for Jesus himself. Uh, Later in chapter 10, Jesus gives that warning. Uh, Secondly, Matthew plays up the role of John as this sort of latter-day Elijah, going as far as describing his activities in some detail. Uh, But Luke suppresses that description. And then finally, maybe most significantly, although we don't see it in this week's gospel, in both Matthew and Luke, John tells the people that someone who is coming who is more powerful than himself. Somebody is coming. But Matthew has John use this phrase, after me, as in someone who's coming after me who's more powerful. Uh, But Luke omits that phrase. He doesn't say after me. Uh, So what's the reason for that? Well, the reason is that Luke has a particular view of John the Baptist wherein he considers John to be the last and the greatest prophet of Israel. But critically, his role as a prophet of Israel, is clearly distinct from this glorious messianic moment that begins with Jesus. Luke omits the phrase after me, so there's no confusion about whether Jesus might somehow be a disciple or even just a friend of John the Baptist. He marks a clean break between the era of prophecy and Messiah. So let's take a little bit of a closer look at the actual text here. So there's a ton of rich material for us to consider, but This week, I want to focus actually on the initial section, beginning with the list of names Luke rattles off before introducing John the Baptist. So Luke begins with this fairly involved historical account of contemporary rulers. That formula for setting the scene like that was not uncommon in Old Testament writing, and it serves the function of placing the narrative in a particular place at a particular time. It it puts it squarely in history and, and kind of takes it out of fancy. In fact, Luke's mention of this 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, that's the most precise chronological dating evidence in any of the Gospels about Jesus' ministry. Uh, This was also a stylistic choice that showcases Luke's preferred writing style in in a kind of unique way. It mirrors the way a lot of classical Greek authors began their works, a prominent example being like the way Thucydides, in his introduction to the account of the Peloponnesian War, uh, gave kind of a similar roster. So for a gospel author whose intended audience is primarily Gentile, this style is a good choice, uh, and it's it's just classic Luke. So another key point about this list of names, and you know, like let's let's be honest, some of these names are hard to pronounce. When I hear passages like this one, I have this problem. My eyes start to glaze over because I have very little frame of reference a lot of times for who these people are. Uh, but by looking into exactly who's included on this list, we can actually get a pretty good idea of the setting in which Jesus would have begun his ministry. So we see some more familiar names uh, on the list, like Pontius Pilate of criminal sentencing fame. And we also see Annas and Caiaphas, whose family controlled the high priesthood and who, of course, had a significant part in the plot against Jesus. Uh, Just a side note, Caiaphas was the son-in-law of Annas, and he was also the high priest. Annas was not the high priest at the time, but he was so influential that he was basically considered a high priest in every aspect except the title. And so that's why we kind of see them paired together uh, as the high priests. So what does this setting where Jesus begins his ministry actually look like? Well, Palestine was pretty much arbitrarily divided by Rome at the time. Uh, Rome was, of course, the controlling authority of the region. The local religious power at kind of the working level was in the hands of a single family, and that was a family of prominent schemers whose interest in retaining power was clear from the way that Annas hung on to his de facto role of high priest even after his reign ended. So that's a pretty bleak setting. And 
it calls to mind a verse from the book of Judges, uh, specifically chapter 2, verse 18. It was thus the Lord took pity on their distressful cries of affliction under their oppressors. So in this gloomy environment for the people of Israel, God saw fit to send his son and begin the work of remaking and renewing the glory of Jerusalem. And that's a direct callback to the story that we're told in Baruch in the first reading. It was a people who were mournful, people who were miserable, who had been driven out, who had been divided. And they're called now to rejoice because this is the moment that the Lord God has chosen to begin and perpetuate his work of reunification through the person of Jesus Christ. And so we see the readings kind of come full circle in this way. So just some concluding thoughts here. This week's set of readings is very familiar to most of the faithful, or at least the gospel is, um, especially those who are drawn to the evangelical dimension of the faith. And I'm, I'm not, I don't use the word evangelicals the way it's used in contemporary American politics. I mean, actual evangelization. Probably most readers would be able to recite the call of John the Baptist as quoting the prophet Isaiah there. Uh, a lot of people can probably recite that by heart. You know, Make straight his paths. The Lord is coming, one who is power, more powerful than I am. But I think the first half of the verse can kind of unfairly be ignored. It brings to the fore the historical reality of God's incarnation as man in a specific time, in a specific place, and in a specific person. This isn't some generalized sweeping call to just get ready for an ambiguous event at an unknown time and unknown place. This is a call to bear witness to the word made flesh in the real world, the world we can see with our eyes and on which we can work with our hands. God is going to bridge the gap between himself, holy and mighty, and us, frail, lonely. The call of John the Baptist is not one to take lightly or else God's bridge will meet only obstruction and we'll never be close to him as he intends for us. So as we continue on in the season of Advent, we might do well to remember the circumstances in which the Lord God prepared the way for the coming of his son and called us to do the same through the voice of a man crying out in the desert. The difficult, oppressive climate in which a people with a history of being driven out of their homes were made to live, they became a conduit for salvation. God chose that low moment to begin the work of salvation in history. I think this is a good reminder for us today to be cognizant that even in moments of loneliness and isolation, sadness, despair, even just boredom, God's work in the world continues through us and God's work in us continues. And our choice is to respond to the call with open hearts. And it's really encouraging halfway through the Advent season to think about that fact. We're midway between when God began this story and when God intends to culminate it in the person of Jesus. And we have the freedom to choose how we're going to respond. That's all for this week's episode of The Aftermath. Thanks for taking time to join me in this walk through the scriptures here in the second week of Advent. We'll meet up again in the third week to discuss those scriptures sometime after Sunday. And until next time, God bless. God bless.